Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today in our postmodern conservative series, in our series of conversations and interviews in memory of our inspiration and the man in the picture that you always see with Pomocon, Peter Lawler, I turn to my friend Pete Spiliakos. Pete and I have been doing this for three and a half years now, something like that, and with more than a dozen podcasts primarily on pop culture, but also on politics. We were at Pomocon before at NRO, and this is the first time we talk about what it is that we have in common, how we came together in the first place, and how we became friends. Peter Lawler. We will be talking about his political thought, his activity as a pundit, the advice he wanted to give, and the sorts of questions he was willing to ask, and the ugly truths he was willing to face that were not often faced politically on the Republican or conservative side in the discourse. And we will take it from there to postmodern conservatism as political thought. Pete, thanks a lot for joining me again, for agreeing to do this, to remember our great friend. And please tell us about your own work as a columnist, as a political writer, as a pundit, and your relationship with Peter. Yes, hi, Titus. I'm Peter Spiliagos, obviously. Um, Peter and I were co-bloggers at No Left Turns, a long-since-dead website, but it was pretty popular in the day, and we were co-bloggers at Postmodern Conservative at First Things, and I've written for the online version of First Things, and I've written for National Review Online. Talking about Peter Lawler is difficult, because for most people, his thought is, it's, it's, it's bigger than me. So if I'm going to focus on Peter Lawler, I can focus on one or two things without even coming close to being comprehensive, not only about the man, but about the political thinker. I mean, other people can talk more about his Augustinian revision of American conservatism. Other people can talk about his approach to truth. But what struck me about Peter Lawler, for what was an academic philosopher, he was much more realistic about the world as it is than the pundits whose job it is to talk about the world as it is. Which is not what you would expect, but was the case. I remember reading in No Left Turns in 2006. That's a long time ago. And it was the fall of 2006, and a whole bunch of other college professors who wrote at No Left Turns were talking about what was going to happen in the midterm election. And Peter Lawler was like, the Republicans are screwed. Now, it's a center-right website, but a lot of people were basically lying to themselves about what was likely to happen. And Peter Lawler was like, no, it's going to be bad. Well, the election happened, and he was right. And when I read it, I'm like, why was he right when all these other guys weren't necessarily wrong, but they didn't want to see what was happening. They didn't want to admit what was happening. Well, he did. And a similar thing happened in 2008 when he basically said the Republicans are in trouble. Now, once again, he's not – we don't want to make it sound like he's a political prophet. We don't want to sound like he can tell the future. And he would be the last person to say that he could do that. He was in his own way remarkably humble. But he tried to see things as they were when other people either tried to see things as they wanted to be or were fronting and were pretending things were some way they weren't. He was one of the first conservative commentators who would basically say, well, the Reagan agenda is obsolete. You can't run in 2008 as if it's 1980. And keep in mind, this is 12 years ago. And he was telling them it's obsolete. Well, now it's 2020. And it's just it's just about sinking. in. So 12 years after he made the point, you know, maybe half the Republican Party is internalized, that you can no longer do this anymore. However, half the Republican Party hasn't. They think that you still can. You know, my first interaction with Peter Lawler was in the spring of 2008. He wrote on No Left Turns that the Iraq War was going to sink McCain. 
And I wrote, well, Iraq might actually get better, but the economy is in recession and the economy is not going to get better before the election. In other words, that it already shown up in the public numbers that the recession had started and things like unemployment are lagging indicators. So if it's obvious in the spring that the recession has started, the unemployment rate will start crawling up in late summer, early fall. And the economy will start being a drag on top of everything else. And I just remember writing a comment saying, actually, for McCain, the economy is a bigger drag because Iraq might get better. You know, the violence might go down, but unemployment's only going to go up. And he wrote a very kind comment back saying, yeah, you're, you're right about that. And now, keep in mind, I wasn't predicting the financial crash. I wasn't predicting that it would become the Great Recession. I was just look at it and say, you know, party looking for a third term in the White House during a recession. In fact, during, you know, a recession has struck in such a way that the unemployment rate is going to go up before the election. They're in serious trouble. Once again, he was able to, he was willing to change his perception based on the facts. And that kind of started our interactions. And I only met Peter Lawler in person once. And that was in Boston in 2008 during um, the American Political Science Association meeting. Now, I'm not an American political scientist. I'm not any kind of a political scientist. But I was just, I lived near there, and I met him at a meeting. And he was at a panel discussion with Hadley Arcs, who's a political philosopher. And I really like Hadley Arcs. I'd been reading Hadley Arcs for, you know, around 10 years at that point. And I remember at that panel discussion, Hadley Arcs made an argument to the point where he said that if George W. Bush had said this, 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 and this about Iraq, then he could have turned around the public opinion on it. And I just listened to that and I said, that's crazy. The failure was such that there was no public relations solution to the problem. Rhetoric doesn't have that kind of power. You know, George Bush is actually a very underrated rhetorician. He was a pretty good speaker. We choose not to remember how good a speaker he was and how good at running for office he was, but he was actually pretty good at both of those things. Not necessarily great, but pretty good and better than any of his Republican successors. But there was no rhetoric that George Bush was going to produce that was going to make people forget that the costs were, had been much higher than advertised and the benefits were much smaller than advertised. That was not going to change. And I, was, you know, I looked at Hedley Arks and I looked at Peter Lawler and I said, you know, okay, one guy's more right about politics than it is. One guy is more realistic about it. I thought that was a big moment. And also other things that I liked about him, when dogma hit reality in obvious way, he would choose reality. You can look at the Lockean account of America and understand that it's based on stylized facts, noble lies, a stylized narrative, depending on how you want to, things like the state of nature. There was no state of nature. Even people who are Lockeans will admit there's no state of nature. The thing is, the sociology is invented to work backwards from the politics that a person wants. And Peter Lawler was willing to work through the implications of that. If the sociology is not just wrong, but obviously wrong, that is implications for how you interpret society going forward. You know, he, he made the argument that America is not purely Lockean. And we have to accept that America is not purely Lockean. It's a fusion of multiple elements, some better than others. Once again, I was a Harry Jaffer reader from way back. I really like Crisis of the House Divided. I think there's a lot to learn from Crisis of the House Divided. I think there's a lot to learn from Harry Jaffer's students. But at the same time, Jaffer's interpretation of natural right into natural rights politics doesn't explain all of America. And doesn't have all the answers for all of America. I thought that was an interesting observation. And that basically Orthodox Christianity has some of the answers too, that it's a fusion. It's not necessarily stable over time, but you can't find all these answers looking in one place. And maybe the Peter Lawler quote that I most often use, because it shows up a lot, it's, I was reading Twitter the other day, and someone said that no president has ever criticized his successor the way that Barack Obama has criticized Donald Trump, which is, you know, Herbert Hoover spent eight years saying that FDR is leading us into fascism. You know, James Buchanan basically blamed Abraham Lincoln for splitting the country apart. And what someone said was, I'm always amazed by the presentism of Twitter and of contemporary political pundits. 
But what Peter Lawler, one of his famous saying was that things are always getting better and worse simultaneously. And that nostalgia has to be selective. There's nothing wrong with nostalgia. There's things to learn in the past. There's things from the past that we can build on, but we can't bring back the past. And we wouldn't want to bring back the past. And, you know, sometimes the good and the bad are linked. Sometimes you can't get it, some of the good things without some of the bad things, but not necessarily. So, you know, love of certain things in the past is legitimate. Seeking to learn from things, even to, or to rebuild them, or to recapture some of them, would be a good thing. But it has to be selective. It has to be contextual. You have to be willing to say, okay, we can do this, but we can't do that. And that's a level of realism you don't see much of anymore. And not only that, it's a level of realism that is kind of discouraged by social media. It rewards hysterical people making the wildest claim based on bundles that the bundles don't make sense in themselves, but they make sense of that person's personal abnormal psychology. And they just demand that everyone else buy the whole bundle based on their obviously crazed interpretation of the past and their tendency to make insane demands. So, yeah, we miss them. Yeah, Peter was all right with America, broadly speaking. His politics did not start from a deep revolt against things. Neither a revolt of a progressive kind that wants to do away with the past, nor with a reactionary revolt that wants to return a hundred, two hundred, how many hundreds of years back. That's not where he started in politics. He started from the fact that he thought Americans were kind of okay. His experience was primarily academic, but he always went around noticing people where he lived in small town Georgia. And America turned out to be very livable, full of people who go on with life without the kind of crisis that is, as you so well put it, now epitomized online, where each person's madness, if he has any bit of celebrity, turns out to be a view of the history of America and the world and the political platform. No, that's just your pathologies. These are things you're supposed to keep private, deal with them as best you can with people who care about you, you know, use some of your better thoughts, some of the better parts of you if you're going to involve yourself in public affairs. But I guess that's not a popular opinion. Peter, he looked at things in a far more normal way that might now seem upside down because whatever troubled him, he didn't want to blame America for it. If he had the unhappiness that all human beings have, he didn't want to take it out on the country or achieve some kind of transformation that would finally give him everything in the world, he was all right. And that sanity, that sobriety, that moderation made it possible for him to be realistic about politics. His first thought was not how to demand insane things so that he could tolerate himself or tolerate America. And I think that is in a strange way connected with this other thing you mentioned. Now, I'm a great admirer of Harry Jaffa, of what is called West Coast Straussian political inquiry into America, into the founders, into Lincoln, because those were great men. And the scholars were great scholars. That's what you want if you're going to learn anything. You want a better standard of politics than the guys that excite passions right now. Trump is not a great politician. Andrew Cuomo is even worse, actually. So with all these other people, they're losers. Whatever their PR might say, whatever inflamed passions might say, you need a better guide to politics. And the greatest men your country can offer are the best place to start. But indeed, you'll get a sense reading these things that people want some rhetorical power, remember the speeches of Lincoln, to somehow transform the way society is now. And that's just not possible. You know, it would be useful to learn how could Lincoln come from nothing and become successful. That is very useful. And it is tied to morality and to his principles and his rhetoric. But the rhetoric isn't that powerful. The other stuff was the power. The rhetoric was to a large extent there as a kind of education for the nation so that now we can read these things and think about them. 
It could make Americans better, but it doesn't have magical powers. It can't transform misery into success. And if you have catastrophic politics, it will lead to catastrophe. And it doesn't matter how good the rhetoric is. It kind of reminds me of a situation where George Bush, in a second term, had maybe the worst press secretary I've ever seen. I forgot his name now. He doesn't matter. But he was just brutal. Trump's first press secretary was about as bad. The guy that lasted for Trump for about a week and a half before he quit. But Bush's press secretary was terrible. And, you know, you had this internet journalism professor. He'd been a real journalist for like five minutes. Then he became a journalism professor for 20 years and told everybody how to be journalists. But he had this idea that, you know, this press secretary showed that Bush had contempt for the press and had contempt for free speech and had contempt for everything. And on the other hand, conservatives were like, wow, this dude sucks. He's doing a terrible job of explaining Bush's politics. We need a better guy. Because back then, the press secretary would do daily press briefings. It was carried live on cable television. And the thinking among conservatives was, if you get a better press secretary, things will be better. So he replaced his press secretary with the late Tony Snow, who's a journalist. And Tony Snow was as good a press secretary as I've ever seen. He was outstanding. He was great at answering questions. He was civil. He was a good guy, giving the best answers that were going to be given by a Bush administration official. You could not have asked for anything better. And nothing changed. Because the problems were not in the realm of rhetoric. Now, this is not to say that rhetoric doesn't matter. Rhetoric, in some circumstances, can make all the difference. But they can make all the difference when the span that it needs to jump is a foot or two feet. If you want to connect things that are closer together, rhetoric might get you there. But if the span is the size of the Grand Canyon, it's not going to do that. I mean, the thing is, which is interesting about the West Coast Straussian people, is that, you know, if you study Socrates, Socrates is the first guy to tell you that there are limits to rhetoric. There are limits to the ability of rhetoric to get people to do what you want, to remake the world. I mean, in his view, the sophists so the people who think that rhetoric is all powerful. They weren't saying 2,000 years ago, you could Jedi mind trick people into believing whatever they want and doing whatever you want. But that's what they meant in Breaking Bad. There's that point where Walter White was a very smart man, and he's a meth dealer, and his wife is unhappy that he's a meth dealer. He says, if I can just find the right words in the right order... I can get her to understand. And the thing is, she did understand. There was no confusion. He was a meth dealer. The ability of words to manipulate people is both real and limited. And you see this with the career of Barack Obama. Part of what makes him a great rhetorician is that he understands the limits of rhetoric. If Barack Obama says in 2004, you know, we need space communism, bitches, it doesn't matter how well he says it, he's not going to be president in 2008. He understood the limits of the political moment, and he tried to maximize what he could get from that political moment. So once again, maximum effectiveness for rhetoric means an understanding of its limits in a particular situation, whereas a lot of time it feels like a lot of people in politics understand rhetoric as a magic trick or a superpower. It's just not that way. Yeah, that's especially a weakness of conservatism, because we understand primarily the power of rhetoric to come from exhortation. From me telling you to be more moral, be more public-spirited, be a better citizen, love your country more. And yeah, of course, we should all be better citizens, we should all work harder for the public good, but words can't change that much. They can activate character in the right circumstances, but they can't change character. This is what America is like in 2020. Nobody can go back to the past and say, you know what? If we get all these Americans not to goddamn divorce each other like crazy and create a generation of miserable people, then those miserable people are not going to ruin the country, burn down cities and what have you. Well, that's a true account of things to a very large extent. You create through the generation of American divorce a generation of lonely young people and you're going to get a catastrophe.
but that account has nothing to do with political action. You have to deal with people as they are now, not to presume that you can transform their education or the experiences that have made them into the adults that they are. So there are very serious limits to moral exhortation. You have to be realistic about these limits and make sure that if you ask something of people, it's pretty likely to work or else you will create massive disappointments, which politicians have done for more than a generation. It's a side of rhetoric that people don't pay enough attention to because of presentism. What happens if you raise hopes that you didn't disappoint? That's obviously the biggest criticism one should make of Barack Obama. I have many things to say in favor of the politician of the president Barack Obama, but the biggest thing against him is that he raised people's hopes to an insane pitch and the disappointment led to misery. The terrible things we see now on the left side of American politics. I don't blame Obama much for anything that happened on the right side of America, but on the left side of America he is to a large extent responsible for turning an idealism into cynicism, high hopes into hatred, sentimentality into brutality. He didn't realize that there are limits to speeches, so I disagree with you partly on that matter. He showed that on the progressive side, even more than the conservative side, there is this desperate hope that by exhorting Americans, you can tell them not just that there's one America, not red America and blue America, but one America, but also that you can tell them that, you know, everything will work better. Institutions, money, the economy, foreign affairs. That's not realistic. The realistic account is America is in a 2008 massive crisis and in the future we'll have a great enemy in China. You don't want to have a war about this. You don't want to go crazy, but you have to be realistic. And in America, you're going to have this problem with the economy and the recession that would be very, very hard to deal with even if we're adults. But you can't promise people everything from shovel-ready jobs to the transformation of climate change to all the stuff that the Obama rhetoric was big on. You know, a new creative economy and magical technologies that will give you moral energy. That was never going to happen. So there are always very big problems with rhetoric whenever you have any kind of popular regime. It is the case that people are tempted to promise magical powers and get people to feel the right way as though that's going to transform reality. But it's not, and I think you are fundamentally right. This is what philosophy really has to offer people, reminding people that magic doesn't exist. Words may feel magical when you hear them or when you say them, but they do not transform character, they do not transform circumstances. They don't make you master of the world. They don't make you, you know, the hero from the Marvel movie who just says the right words and punches harder and gets victory. And they don't make you into the Matrix. You can't give these kinds of fantasies power over people's souls. It's a catastrophic way to think about politics. But unfortunately, it's very popular. You can see in an accelerated way in our times that every political movement has outlived its reputation. People alive today, celebrated and hated on Twitter, have all outlived their reputation. And Barack Obama is the best example of that because he was the most well-meaning in a way. But so many others on both the Democrat and the Republican side, you see people who had influence five years ago, ten years ago, are still alive but are wrecks. They're the ruins that you visit to think, what was America like in 2004 or in 2010? What kind of insane fantasies were we chasing after then that made these people super famous briefly? And it all went to hell. That's the price you pay for ignoring how enduring character is, how hard it is to escape your reputation once it has formed. You gotta be realistic about politics because if you overpromise and underdeliver, that will have a lot of effects on other people and on how they see you. 
Well, the thing like Obama is that you can find cases where he overpromised. Like he said, there was a famous speech where he said, let this be the moment where the sea level stopped rising. Yeah, that wasn't that moment. And, you know, you hear Joe Biden now talk about how racist and unequal America is. Okay, well, what was going on during those eight years? Now, we understand that these politics are intractable. But are we going to talk as if your eight years didn't happen? And uh, he, he actually is on firmer ground when he's talking about, hey, the Affordable Care Act happened then. We can build on that. When he's issuing these broad indictments of America, which are actually not so secretly broad indictments of his own political career, not just in the Senate, but also as Obama's vice president, there is a problem there. But one thing that conservatives should learn from Obama, he knew not to over-demand from the American public. In his most famous speech, more famous than any speech he gave as president, was his speech at the Democratic National Convention, which is not actually much of a policy speech. And the most famous line from that is that, you know, it's not red America, it's not blue America, it's just the United States of America. And one of the themes of Obama's post-presidency, he doesn't give it in his major addresses, but he says it every once in a while, he criticizes and does not particularly respect the authoritarian left radical tendency within the party, where basically says don't treat other people like they're monsters. You know, the radical left tendency would say that a near majority of Americans are absolute monsters and the other 51 percent require severe policing and re-education, too. And, you know, he understands this is bad politics, but he also understands it is bad humanity. So there's something to be said for that. But what's irritating every once in a while is that when you point out the limits of rhetoric, they'll see how did Obama become president as if it was just a magic trick. Well, you know, the calamity of the Iraq war is part of how he became president. The timing of the Great Recession is how he became president. Obama's understanding that you just can't go out there and say whatever you want and expect to become president is how you became president. When they imagined Obama said nice words and he became president, what they meant was, I can give you my fantasy program, and if I can just find the right words for my fantasy program, at any given day, I'll win an election. And Obama never believed that. You know, Obama tends to criticize a radical left portion of his party, but Obama, the guy, is probably significantly to the left of the guy who ran for president. But he hedged and he compromised, and he made the best of those edges and compromises, and he made the best case for the most popular agenda that he could come up with, which was not necessarily the agenda he would have come up with if he had been absolutely free to impose his own personal preferences. And those are important lessons, too. And they're exactly the lessons that people are seeking to evade by over-focusing on the quality of his rhetoric. You know, they're ignoring the things that he might like to have said but didn't say, the things that he might like to have proposed but didn't propose. They're ignoring the opportunities that were there for him that won't necessarily be there for you. You know, he dealt with the world as it was, not as he would like it to be. You know, if you can learn those things from Barack Obama, that's a valuable lesson. One of those lessons is you just can't go out there and say, hey, single payer. You know, Barack Obama probably does want single payer. He's probably won his single payer for 30 years, but he didn't say it because he knew it would have reduced his chances of becoming the nominee, much less becoming president. And he didn't go, hey, wait a minute, I'm Barack Obama. I'll talk about how single payer is and I'll magic trick everybody into believing single payer is a good thing. No, what he did was he proposed a policy plan that he thought would be, if not mostly popular, at least not mostly unpopular. He made the best case for it. Circumstances broke his way. They didn't have to. They might not have. He might not have gotten those breaks, but every successful politician gets some breaks, and he took advantage of his. But these much more limited lessons work with the green of public opinion. Or if you're going to work against public opinion, you know, don't work against an overwhelming majority of public opinion on a high salience issue. Have it be, you know, if it's 47 for you, 52 against you, you can kind of make that work if you have a friendly Congress. But if it's 70 against you and 25 for you, that's a lot more difficult. There's all kinds of prudential lessons that I don't want to say they limit rhetoric, 
rhetoric makes making the most of those possibilities possible. So if you don't understand rhetoric, you can screw it up. But if you're operating on a fantasy land in the first place, then rhetoric can't solve the problem for you. In fact, rhetoric itself is part of the fantasy. Yeah, this is perhaps the most important lesson for Republicans to learn. In our lifetimes, it has been invariably the case that Republicans have lived win, lose, or draw in a fantasy land that says we just need a better messenger. He should look smarter, more populist, he should be more diverse or less diverse depending on the constituency. But the messenger is the thing. The look, the quality of speech, the persuasiveness, that's the thing. It doesn't matter if your political opinions are not going to persuade the majority. It doesn't matter if the majority, even if it's against your adversaries in a partisan way, it's also against you. Because with the right messenger, you're going to get it. And character turns out to mean just that. How do you get into office? McCain was a hero. Doesn't matter that he loathed his own electorate. Well, in politics, it does matter. The consent of the governed to the act of government cannot work if the people in charge despise the people whose votes they require. And in a strange way, that's true of all these Republican leaders. We've gone through this before, so I won't dwell on it. But just over the last couple of months, both George W. Bush and Mitt Romney have come out against their own electorate. The people whose votes they required and accepted. The votes of the party that they led in successive elections. How can you do that? Well, if you believe rhetoric is magic, if you're lost in fantasy land, this is perfectly possible. It's okay to ask for the votes of the party in 2012 and then in 2020 to turn around and say they were racist all along and Black Lives Matter. Nobody could do that who takes rhetoric seriously, however, as a part of politics. The part that says events are complicated and they're not obvious and there's a lot of people who mostly want to go on with life, but in political moments of importance and in elections, they need somebody to clarify the issue for them so that they realize, yeah, I want this sort of thing, that other thing, no. And other things I'm hesitant about. And I'm for sure that I'm opposed to the other party, but I'm not for sure what idea I'm for when I'm opposed to the other party. Rhetoric is supposed to show that some politicians grasp how to talk to the people to clarify their own minds, not to steal their minds, not to transform the electorate into another electorate. You cannot switch parties and you cannot switch countries. You got to live with the electorate you do have and make the best of it. Clarify for them what is at stake and where their interests lie as they themselves understand it. You can expand that. You can ask them to take some chances. If you've ever done anything for people, you can ask them to trust you on things when they're in doubt. But you can't transform who they are, what they believe, what they want, what's good for them and what's not. And on the Republican side, people no longer grasp that. That rhetoric is how the best politicians educate the people and all the other politicians about how to deal with the important matters that divide us so that we can get through it. And that means you have to understand what it means to get through it. You still have to live with the other half of the people later. Now, this means you often have to distinguish the electorate of the other party from the rulers of the other party and from the activists. Democrats in America are nice people, but it's perfectly possible to say that activists who are burning down cities are monsters. But you can't demonize the electorate, and you can't therefore demonize simply the ideas of the other party. You have to make sure you understand these distinctions and that you clarify them so that the other party can live with your victory. That is another function of rhetoric in a political system based on political contests. There is another party. Half the nation doesn't love you. In fact, they might hate your guts. 
why should they live with your election? Well, if you reassure them that you understand what their opinions are and that those opinions are simply covered under what it means to be American, and so they'll be fine and safe and not dishonored or disrespected, then they can live with electoral defeat while looking forward to an electoral victory in another four years or whatever. So it can be done. And again, that shows you the powers of rhetoric are related to its limits. To understand that is also to understand that you have to start by liking what America is like. You have to be okay with the fact that there are two parties in this country, that the people are often undecided or unclear in their thinking on big issues. Maybe they're lazy about all sorts of important origin things. Maybe they made mistakes in supporting various policies and now you have to change that. But you have to build any criticism of the people on a basis of accepting that this is the American people and the citizenship mostly works out. They need guidance, they need leaders, but they do not need a master or somebody to brainwash them. And you see this on both sides. Conservatives still talk about how Obama was partisan. Well, of course he was partisan sometimes. It's partisan politics. You don't get to say hundreds of thousands or millions of words over a seven or eight year period over intellectual struggles and not be partisan. It happens. Any kind of realistic evaluation, every politician would expect it. But on the left, you'll see, well, what did Obama get? He was unifying and he got birtherism. Well, what he got was two terms as president. That's what he got. In other words, even though, you know, Donald Trump was a big jerk and he said all kinds of other things and people on email lists said things and people did protests, which is, you know, peaceful protests is a normal activity. There weren't anti-Obama riots. Most people accepted Obama pretty well. I mean, and it's like, well, what about the Tea Party? Well, Tea Party, it's a normal public response. These people were not, you know, knocking over, we're not burning libraries. You know, you might not have liked all of their rhetoric, but most of America treated Obama as a legitimate president. Now, they elected Donald Trump, but you might want to think about possibly Donald Trump and Barack Obama have continuities rather than just differences. And some of their continuities include some of the same voters. You know, millions of people who voted for Barack Obama voted for Donald Trump, maybe because both Donald Trump and Barack Obama understood some things about America and about what American voters needed and weren't getting and managed to use that to their advantage. I mean, Barack Obama invested millions and millions and millions of dollars in rural Rust Belt markets, saying Mitt Romney is a plutocrat who's going to shut down your factory and lay you off and you'll die of no health care. There's a reason Obama did that. You know, in a lot of these places, that's pretty much what was happening. Meanwhile, you have these conservative think tank nerds. Well, actually, if you think about it, the movement of the production overseas actually meant that there were welfare gains in other areas where there are agglomerations of skills. Yeah, there were, but the misery that was there was there, and Obama understood it, and Obama used it against Mitt Romney, because, you know, if you're a Rust Belt person, Mitt Romney's campaign was basically, Henry Olson, who was one of the better political observers, basically said that Mitt Romney's campaign was, we're going to cut your boss's taxes, and maybe he won't shut down the factory this year. Maybe he'll shut it down next year, and you'll get one more year before the factory shuts down, and, you know, half of the working-age politician goes on heroin. So you got one, you got, we got one more year of that, but... Mitt Romney's attitude was that you're screwed, okay? I'm a job creator. We're gonna, the jobs will be created when they're created. And some places are lucky and some places ain't. There are acceptable casualties to capitalism, and we've decided that those are you. Obama said, you don't want this guy. He's not looking out for you. He's not going to help you. So, you know, millions of persuadable Rust Belt white working class voters looked at it and said, either I'm going to vote for Obama or I'm not going to vote at all. And what Donald Trump did was, in 2016, he just applied that lesson not just to the Republican Party, but to the Democratic Party, where it's a, you have eight years of Democratic presidency, and you've had eight more years of Rust Belt industrial decline and rising social dysfunction. And he said, well, they don't care about you either. I mean, Mitt Romney doesn't care about you, but neither do the Democrats. 
Obama was smart enough that he invested in keeping down the Republican margins in these places. Hillary Clinton's campaign was basically, you're right, I don't care about you. Because I read this book called The Emerging Democratic Majority, and it told me that we don't need you. And so, yeah, shut up and die of heroin, you deplorables. I found cooler voters. Donald Trump, they look at this person and say, this person at least acknowledges that our problems exist and at least is offering solutions. Now, you and I can look at those solutions and go, all right, he's a giant liar who's just making things up. He's not going to bring back an idealized version of the 1965 industrial economy. It's not going to happen. But they were able to look at him and say, okay, he acknowledges that our problems are real. Two, he acknowledges that our problems are important. And three, he's offering some kind of solution where these other people are saying that our problems are fake. We're not that important. And we just have to suck it up. And given those choices, they chose the guy who treated them like they mattered and offered solutions. But the reason he did that was he understood something about America that Barack Obama also understood about America. And that's one of the reasons why they share those voters. Yeah, that's somehow a lesson that people still don't want to learn. If you look at the Republican Party, it's quite obvious that mostly people are looking to figure out how to exploit new possibilities in political advertising so that you can get yourself into whatever office or whatever influence you can get. It does not occur to them that for all their faults, both Obama and Trump pointed out that the American elites don't have the control they think they have over the American population and that no amount of magic of rhetoric can fix that problem. Only politicians who can figure out the coalitions can fix that problem. This is why the Democrat Party without Barack Obama is flailing. In a moment of desperation, they have turned to a zombie, to Joe Biden, and nobody has any real reason to believe he will be alive or functional on election day. We just all hope, because who the hell knows what will happen if what, what is common for people in their late 70s inevitably happens. We just don't want to think about these things and pretend Joe Biden is still in 2008, if not 1988, and it's perfectly reasonable to do politics with people at the end of their 70s. We're all crazy. We're all living in a crazy land now because this is how we have built things up. We just hope for the best in the circumstances we have made for ourselves. But that's the only guy people in that party can even pretend at the elite level might have something to do with the rest of America. That's a crazy situation for Democrats to be in after Obama, and it's because they don't want to learn. They did not want to say, well, you know, the rest of America gets a vote too, and you had better crawl your way to a majority coalition. And they didn't want to because they believe in things like, you know, the Clintons, which turned out to be such a catastrophe because of this new elitist oligarchic contempt for most people. And the Republicans are in the same situation. They ended up with Trump because nobody could fight off the contempt they had for the people. Surely Americans are so stupid that with the right combination of lies, we'll wow them and they'll vote for us. And then we'll go back to doing what we always wanted to do anyway. And it doesn't matter what people are so angry about. The substance of their concerns, like the substance of their lives, is of no importance to politics. That's cloud cuckoo land that elites are living in. And they think that they have the magical powers to enforce cloud cuckoo land in America over against the fact that Americans get a chance to vote. Now, you can take many, many things from Americans, but you cannot take away the right of the vote, even the right of the poor to vote, even the right of the unhappy or angry. And if that means they blame one part of the oligarchy, well, it's really impossible to blame them reasonably. Only when people begin to realize that and accept it. In a democracy, people get to vote. You have to get their votes and climb your way to a majority, which is a pretty good indication of where the country is and which way to go. It's not perfect, but it's a minimum requirement. 
Only when people can accept that can you move on with politics and say, all right, what are the likeliest things to work? What are the most urgent problems we have to deal with? Because if you do not accept that presupposition of electoral contest of the majority coalition, you think, you know, those few of us at the top, this part of the oligarchic elite or this other part has really developed a neat new trick and some magical clown shows and will totally steal the minds of the electorate and get what we want. So long as that ambition is still there, so long as that desire to get an easy way out is there, we cannot tell people be realistic because the fantasy is still in charge of people's minds. The more they think of themselves as sophisticated, the more they think of themselves as needing to provide a new version of that fantasy, a new version of the power of rhetoric to overcome reality. And part of what's going on is that, once again, Trump, who's an inveterate liar and an exaggerator, he's the president, but that's what he is. You can look at Donald Trump as a triumph of illusion over reality, but I think that's a mistake. It makes more sense if you understand Donald Trump as somebody who, despite all of his flaws, was willing to acknowledge certain realities that other politicians were choosing to ignore. Now, some of them are electoral realities. With the emerging Democratic majority, the Democrats decided that rural, secular, working class swing voters in swing states don't matter. Now, that's completely insane if you look at the margins, but they wanted to believe that because Democratic politicians don't actually like these voters. Democratic politicians think of these voters as being whiny losers who are racist and xenophobic and we would all be better off without and they're obsolete for the economy and we don't need them. So they chose to work out the illusion that these voters don't matter. And, you know, Republicans believe that these voters were economic dinosaurs, but you could deactivate them, just kind of ignore them. What's ironic is that if you look at Mitt Romney's 47% comment, the 47% of families that don't have net income tax liabilities are losers and you can't make them care about their lives. And you look at Hillary Clinton and her basket of deplorables comment. These are the same comments. I mean, the thing is, there's a huge amount of overlap in who Mitt Romney and Hillary Clinton were talking about. And Donald Trump recognized that reality. But there's also other realities. Like Donald Trump was the only Republican who treated the Iraq war as a mistake that we don't want to repeat. And Rand Paul was against it. But most Americans don't want the Paul family's version of isolationism. The Paul family basically believes America should have stayed neutral in both World War II and the Civil War. I mean, I, I exaggerate, but only a little. They might be against crusading interventionism, but they're also against just dumb isolationism, too. But Donald Trump, you know, he said that I was against the Iraq war from the beginning. Well, he lied. He always lies. But when he talked about the Iraq war, he says, this is a big mistake and we should never do this again. Whereas the Republican politicians, they said it, but you can tell they didn't mean it. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, do you think the Iraq war was a mistake? And Marco Rubio will go, yeah, the Shmurak war was a mistake. Wait a minute, you didn't say Iraq, you said Shmurak. <laughs> the other conventional Republican politicians gave the sense that they were only against the Iraq war because people were mad at them. And if you put them in office, they were going to do the same goddamn thing over again. And Donald Trump gave the impression that he'd actually learned a valuable lesson and wasn't going to try to, re to repeat it, where the other people were very unconvincingly telling you what you wanted to hear, but they just didn't believe it. Jeb Bush was Iraq war mistake. It took him three or four days to figure out that he should pretend to believe that it was a mistake. Even George W. Bush said, listen, pretend to believe it's a mistake. All right. Now, actually, one of the things I like about Jeb Bush, I know it's easy to hate the guy of a lot of people on the right. I like that Jeb Bush ran for office as Jeb Bush. They basically, I want virtually open borders. The Iraq war was awesome. My brother was great about everything. This is what I think America doesn't. Oh, you don't want that? Fine. Have Donald Trump, you jerk. <laughs>
I kind of respect that from the guy. I like people who have the courage of their convictions, and I like people who don't need the office. And he didn't need the office. There are bad reasons why people voted for Trump, but there's also good reasons why they didn't vote for Jeb Bush. And there's good reasons why they didn't vote for the other Republican politicians. And unless the Republicans can figure that out, they're going to have a weaker understanding of their country. Yeah, I think you're exactly right about this. Trump did not lie, by the way, about foreign policy. He has been the president who does get America into a next war. Now, Hillary had the war and wanted more. Libya was never going to be enough for her. And of course, George W. Bush had all the war America could take and then some. But Trump isn't. Peter used to call him a flimflam man, the confidence man. But he does not try to get the country into wars. He doesn't have this insane idea that elites have that I will prove to you that your experience of suffering doesn't count because America is great, because America can kick ass around the world, okay? He doesn't do that. I'd rather have somebody who keeps saying, you know, America, America, I'm great again, to people who say, I will prove American greatness by bombing another country into a catastrophe. Let's see how many people we can get killed. And our own. Let's see how many of our own boys can get killed. I think those people are insane. But since they are in positions of elite institutional authority, they cannot be questioned. And they know they cannot be questioned. And for that reason, the only time when they are vulnerable is election time. And at election time, it turned out that the entire Republican Party was really, really weak on foreign policy. And that Democrats were actually very, very weak on it as well in 2016. And you'd think after Republicans committed suicide in front of the world on foreign policy, the Obama Democrats were going to be pretty good on that. But they weren't because they too are stuck with this insane idea that elites have. And for that reason, in 2016, Trump wasn't just right on the rhetoric. He also turned out not to be lying. He also turned out not to do anything bad for the country in that sense. Now, there's much to say against his diplomacy and then so forth. But there's also, again, much worse to say about both the Republicans and the Democrats who were and would be in bed with the Chinese. If they could get away with it, Joe Biden's Democrats would do it again in 2020. And this is another situation where we see that Trump, crazy as this seems, because he's a flimflam man is the only guy who actually is on the side of the American people on the most important foreign policy matters of the last 20 years and the ones that are still urgently important in the case of China. That's a crazy situation for the country to be in, but there you go. And so it is with foreign policy, but so also in a sense is with domestic policy. Peter Lawler never claimed to be a predictor, and so he admitted, like everybody else, that he didn't expect Trump to win. But he also said about Trump that he got certain important things right, and the basic of domestic politics, which is this is a country. There's an inside and an outside. There are Americans, and there are all the other people who may be nice people, but they're not Americans. And Trump, again, was the only man in elite America willing to say that America is a real country and therefore it must have borders. And you have to have a prejudice in favor of citizens and prefer them. All Americans get the protection of American laws. They get respect from American authority and from the elites. And that turned out not only not to be happening, but not to be on the menu. Donald Trump showed America that you can have a bipartisan contest, you'll have all this electoral showmanship, and yet the parties are united on the notion that no America doesn't have borders and his citizens who believe that are just fascists. And you can't have politics in America in this way. There is room for one party in America that calls the majority racist, fascist, horrible Hitler. Not room for two parties of that particular political and rhetorical bent. And so it turned out that Republicans were very easily taken over and Democrats strangely easily defeated in a situation where they, for very good reasons, believed they were going to sail to victory.
But it turns out you can't just sail to victory if you go too far spitting on your own country and spitting on everything that makes for American citizenship, for America, for the flag, for patriotism, for all of these things. So again, you see that rhetoric cannot be an excuse for ignoring reality. It can be only a way of dealing with reality. It can improve on things because if you give people hope, they will get to work more. If they're despairing, they will not work, even at things that they could do without any serious risk. And in a way, the difference between the defeated Republicans and the victorious Trump Republicans was that Trump gave people hope. As you were saying earlier, millions of people who voted for Obama voted for Trump because at least there was a little hope there. These people are not stupid and they are not evil and they are not living in cloud cuckoo land like our elites because they're too poor and they have too much suffering to entertain these fantasies. You have to be pretty rich in America to entertain the fantasies of our elite liberalism. But they needed some hope and it worked in a way precisely because they could judge him pretty harshly. They didn't have to pretend to themselves. They just had to look at what was on offer and realize that Donald Trump was the only guy who wasn't saying or signaling that he was going to put an end to their way of life and to all their hopes and dreams and their memories. So that turned out to be enough. But I think also you have to think about how many people in America are feeling that elite liberalism, which is based in primarily coastal metropolises, hates their guts and despises them. How many middle-class Americans who aren't poor, who aren't afraid of poverty, who aren't afraid of the consequences of foreign wars or competition in the economy, international or whatever, they're fine, but they're humiliated. And at some level, they've begun to fear that liberalism isn't just a humiliation. Liberalism can reach into your life through the federal government, through the federal courts. They will sue your business over a civil rights matter on your religion if you happen to be a Christian. Now, maybe the majority of Republicans are Christians, the majority of Americans aren't really Christian. But still, in the Republican half of America, it matters a lot, even though most people aren't really big churchgoers, and most big churchgoers weren't Trump fans. They did not vote for Donald Trump in 2016 in the primaries because he's obviously not a Christian man. But come 2020, Donald Trump is stumbling into another one of these situations where it turns out that he might be the only guy who can protect. Americans on the fundamentals. It's not just that he's the only guy who's willing to say foreign wars are a catastrophe and the Chinese are not our friends. We should have borders. We're Americans. It's not a thing to be ashamed of. We don't owe it to other people to prostrate before them. They should be thanking us for any good thing they get. America is good. But it's also that he's the only guy who might protect Christians who might give more broadly to middle-class people not in the liberal elite or the liberal elite current, the people who don't consume the woke media of the liberal elite, who look at it with fear. Every time there's another moral outrage about transgender issues, a lot of people think, what the hell are liberals doing to our country and who might defend us? when these people weaponize it to sue people over their religious convictions. Since this is happening around America, and it gets to the Supreme Court, that if you want to have a casino open during this epidemic, that's fine. But if you want to open your church, you're in breach of the laws. And that's Nevada. It's not California, and it's not Illinois, and it's not New York or New Jersey. It's uh, Nevada. But the Supreme Court of the United States decided that religion, which is explicitly protected in the First Amendment, is actually illegal if the government says so. Whereas gambling, go for it, Sin City. And then you begin to wonder, what if all these middle class people are right to turn to Donald Trump and indeed might get him reelected? It's this sort of situation where Trump's rhetoric points to realities. 
where the rhetoric of the Republican Party points to fantasies and to ugly desires for power without accountability for never having to say you're sorry. Well, what's interesting is like in the 1990s, and I strongly suspect Barack Obama has read this book, the liberal philosopher Richard Rorty wrote a book called Achieving Our Country and basically created you know, what he called the reformist labor-based left and the spectatorial postmodern left. What he meant was that one side of the left that thinks that America is basically a good country with basically good people, but also has a lot of injustice. It's good and bad, but there's a lot more good than bad in America and in Americans. Any hope for reforming America starts with recognizing that and focusing on that. Well, see, a country that wants to reform itself needs national self-respect, not national self-disgust. And Barack Obama, whether he read the book or not, his rhetoric was based on that and is still based on that. You know, there's been a lot of suffering and there's been a lot of injustice, but that's part of life everywhere. And there's a lot of great things in America and most Americans are good. And what unites most Americans is greater than what divides most Americans. And there's another part of the left that doesn't actually believe those things. They believe that maybe 49% of America is absolutely evil. And not only should these people not have any power, they should be completely ostracized and they should be harassed in any way that they act in the public affairs and their organizations should be harassed. And they also believe that the other 51% aren't to be trusted. They believe that American history is overwhelmingly a history of evil. But these people also understood themselves to not be a majority and that the only way they could achieve any political power at the staffing level was by going along with people who didn't say those things. They were part of a coalition. You know, America is evil. America is racist. You know, Mount Rushmore is evil and racist. But at the same time, you have to go along with the president with people who don't. You have to coexist in a coalition with Barack Obama, who's not saying all these things, but also with a bunch of, you know, coal miners in Western Pennsylvania who really don't believe those things. And you really don't like these people. So what happened was, with the publication of the book, The Emerging Democratic Majority, the message was, we don't need those people anymore. We don't need those swing voters. And in fact, those reformist Democrats who we had to put up so that we would get some of what they want, now they have to put up with us. In other words, you might think America is mostly good, but it's not. It sucks. And you have to listen to us now because the alternative to us is the plutocratic racist Republicans who basically justify everything that we say about America. So it's us or the fascists, and we're in charge, and we're basically going to have a hate American party as one of the two American political parties. Now, the Democrats never actually became that at the presidential level. Barack Obama certainly wasn't that. And Joe Biden, he or his staffers were, along with Amy Klobuchar, the people who were least inclined to listen to the radicals in the party. They'll still have influence on the staffing level because people who believe that are overrepresented among activist elites who end up getting staffing jobs or what have you. But Joe Biden was the one guy who held out. What's interesting is that the most realistic elements of the Democratic Party were African-American voters. The white voters divided between white Democratic voters who said, I don't know, destroying private health insurance and opening the borders and calling everybody racist. I don't think that's likely to work. And you had other white voters who were like, no, I read this book. We've won. We can do whatever we want. Donald Trump's an unpopular president and black voters went with the moderates. Now, which is actually kind of interesting because what's called the great awakening with white radicals where white liberals will say that America is more racially unjust than black voters will. But the thing is, black voters basically said is, yeah, we have a lot of experience with injustice. We know the country is really broken. So why would you alienate the maximum amount of people for an election? That's crazy. The thing is, if you want to govern in America to make it better, you have to govern with the America that exists. You can't say both America is racist and evil and, and at the same time tell America, hey, racist and evil and we hate you. Vote for us. That's not how you win it.
You have these people whose indictment of America undermines their own prescription. If America is what you say it is, it would never want you. In fact, if America is what you say it is, you would have been killed long ago. So there's a self-aggrandizing fantasy element of this. And it's not for nothing that the people who are the most moralistic about American evil are the people who have done pretty well by America and expect to do pretty well regardless of who gets to be president. It's a fascist country. Oh, really? You must be extraordinarily brave, <laughs> which you've never demonstrated in any portion of your life at any time. But yeah, you must be extraordinarily brave in order to see that within a fascist country. Because were you protesting against Xi in China? Because if you were protesting against Xi in China and spent a couple of years in prison there, then I'm willing to believe that then you believe that America is a fascist country and you're courageously acting out. Otherwise, it's just a self-aggrandizing fantasy. You're being dramatic. You're being a 12 or 13 year old. And the problems that you explain are often real, but you're not real. You're a phony. Yeah, the problems we are seeing with the political facts of life in America and the purpose of rhetoric in politics are not simply for the older generation. They are very much a problem for the young generation. It's more obvious on the liberal side because younger people are so overwhelmingly not just liberal, but the prime target of the great awakening. This as much as the corruption, moral intellectual of oligarchic elites in the parties and in the nation, reveals that rhetoric is no longer a matter of talking to the people to get their votes, to get certain things done. You need to appeal to the people whenever the country is divided, whenever elites are divided, you need a mandate, you need a majority, you need people to say, okay, we'll try this out, at least for the time being. That's no longer the way elites think about politics. The purpose of rhetoric now is how can one part of the elite justify its power by essentially blaming the majority. Rhetoric does not serve anymore to persuade the majority that good things are coming in the future, that they should be voting for this. What rhetoric does is explain why the majority is evil and therefore shouldn't be consulted in political affairs, explain why the minority is right to punish the majority. We've come to a point where we have to say at the elite level that more democracy requires excluding the majority to begin with. And from then on, excluding other parts of the country if they become suspect from the point of view of the Great Awakening. The spread of the Great Awakening from colleges, from young activists, from the crazy screwed up people who are damaged goods and are making their problem your problem by burning down the whitest city in America, Portland. <laughs> It spread to corporations, it spread to Silicon Valley, it spread like wildfire through the media, of course, and it's spreading, I promise you, through the legal profession, and we will see the lawsuits that come of the Great Awakening. Civil rights legislation is designed almost to be used by very, very wicked people, and by people who don't realize that they're wicked, they just want to boss everybody around. Civil rights legislation in America turned from saying, oh my God, what is with the racism in the South? To saying something like, all these poor white people in Boston, they need a master. They should be treated like bad servants, slaves even. We're going to have the law bust their kids around. Well, when there are people who have the power of the police taking your children from you at the crack of dawn, you're not a free person in a very important way anymore. And busing was happening in 1970. It didn't need the Great Awakening or 2020 to happen. So there's long been this temptation and it can now be weaponized again. And this shows you partly why rhetoric plays such a strange role in America. If elites are in a position to use institutions and to use the connections between government and corporations to run America without the consent of the government, rhetoric no longer needs to connect the elites to the people. Washington DC or Silicon Valley, much less academia, to the majority of the American people. 
what rhetoric needs to do is to offer a public justification for the distribution of power in the country. It is the public explanation that the elites can give of why they are the elites. They are the elites because we are the racist evil people who have to be destroyed or at least silenced and nature will do the destroying in time. This complete reversal of the role of rhetoric in political life in a free regime, in a democratic regime, has a lot to do with the new power of wealth of institutions and of Washington DC and of the kinds of lawyers who thrive everywhere from corporate HR to Washington DC's bureaucracies. Their power does not depend on rhetoric. They are not good rhetoricians, unlike somebody like Barack Obama, because they never needed to be. They had to be very good at internalizing the awakening. They had to be very good at taking their SATs or LSATs or what have you, not at rhetoric. Addressing the American people as though you respected them was never part of the deal for them because they never respected the American people in the first place. We now have an elite that is in important ways post-American. That is to say, it does not believe it is connected to the American people. It conceives of itself as re-educating or transcending the American people, whichever turns out to be more doable. So to understand the purpose of rhetoric is simply not within their purview. Democracy was never within their purview unless it is dispensed by authorities. It's the kind of democracy ordered by a civil rights commission in Colorado that's trying to destroy some guy's business because he didn't want to do this gay marriage theme, something with a cake. That kind of democracy dispensed with punitive power is very much the order of the day. The other kind of democracy that we were talking about before, how do you build a majority coalition? What do you understand about the American people? Stuff that's working, stuff that's not working out, to figure out how to appeal to the better side of them and get them to try something new. That's no longer a concern with the change of generations and with the change of political generations. Younger elites, people in their 30s or 40s, it is in fact going to be much harder, not much easier, to return to the basics of understanding what politics in a democracy is like and what the purpose of rhetoric in that politics is going to be. Well, once again, even getting to young lawyers, David Shore, the guy who was fired, because he basically said that all other things being equal, rioting is less persuasive than not rioting. And he was fired for that. That illustrates several things. One, the toxic set of norms that exist within certain places were basically terrible, insane people who were making obviously fake allegations and obviously insane false claims. People had to pretend these were real and they had to operate as if they were real. What happened to him is more important as an example of institutional corruption. It was visible in this case, but is not necessarily visible in other cases, but operates regularly. But what Shore also said later was that, you know, we need to get youth turnout out. And what he pointed out was that young non-voters overwhelmingly skew in their self-definition as either moderate or conservative. 73% of young voters, according to his calculations. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they're moderate or conservative in the way the Republicans think about those terms. And it doesn't mean they're going to vote for Republicans, because if you're a young voter, you've never seen an example of successful Republican governance. So they're not necessarily easy gets, but these same voters aren't necessarily radical and woke. And what you also pointed out was a lot of these upper middle class authoritarian bureaucrats, whether lawyers, corporate HR people, they operate on an ad hoc basis. In other words, they'll abuse administrative authority any way they have in order to harass their opponents. But there's no real theory behind it in terms of how it works. If the Supreme Court can screw you, we'll screw you by the Supreme Court. If Facebook can screw you, then we'll screw you through Facebook. If it's an anti-discrimination committee in Colorado, we'll screw you. It's more of a class-based, wherever our allies have power, we're going to screw you that way. We're going to take away your job, or we're going to fine you, or whatever. Or we're going to close down your church, and that's, that's, or we're going to ban having Jewish funerals like, like Bill de Blasio. 
But there's no institutional theory of how this would work. Whatever institution this political class of radical upper middle class authoritarians have, they'll exercise that authority. But, you know, the first guy to actually systematize really was the writer Ibram Kendi, where, you know, instead of taking this ad hoc approach, he just said that we should create a political holy inquisition. The other thing is, I don't know if he consciously modeled it on Iran's Guardian Council, but he invented Iran's Guardian Council only for secular American leftists, where there'll be this appointed committee that will tell, no, you, you're a politician with bad ideas, you can't hold this office even though you're elected, or this legislation passed, but you can't have it. Or, you know, certain areas will stop being able to elect people because they have the bad ideas. I mean, this is literally the American Guardian Council. And he's a bestseller. People listen to him. Yeah, let's have a Guardian Council. It works so well in Iran. Maybe we can have an Ayatollah too. So he's actually rationalizing an emergent process where instead of having to appeal to Twitter and Facebook and Google to delist or deplatform people, you have a national committee of deplatforming. These are supposed to be unelected bureaucrats operating under a constitution that's above the constitution. You know, those, whatever brings equity is what's important. And they're the Guardian Council of Equity. And once again, it's clarifying because he's actually articulating a system for an emergent process where, you know, on the radical left, you do have upper middle class people who want to manage democracy. They don't want to have elections and they don't want to have people who disagree with them to be able to be heard in these various forms of rationalizations. Well, you don't have a right to be on Google or, you know, you don't have a right to decide what wedding to cater. They're all very big on deciding what rights you don't have. And so basically just having a constitutional amendment that said, well, you don't have any rights. You don't have any rights. Instead of having to appeal retail to various institutional authorities to abuse their discretion in order to harass their enemies, just have a centralized bureau, a KGB, if you will, a guardian council. So basically take the administrative abuse of authority that you work through government institutions or through corporate power and simply transfer it to an explicit government agency that tells people up front, you can't participate in democratic elections. You can't have what you want. You have to leave. You can't have that job. That's what these people want. And he just basically is telling them, listen, if this is what you want, this is how you should get it. Instead of petitioning some tech billionaire to deplatform your enemies, you should have a centralized committee that basically bans bad people with bad ideas from politics. In practice, he actually says, I can't figure out a way to you know, deplatform voters. But he would if he could. You know, the next step is getting rid of the secret ballot. I mean, if you want to follow Ibram Kendi's ideas, it's a basically secret ballot. If you vote the wrong way, you don't get to have a ballot, you know, until you've gone through a process of re-education. And then we have more ballots. And if you vote the wrong way, you lose it again. So everyone just knows to vote the right way. It is a kind of madness, but it's also an exercise of both public and private authority that a lot of conservatives don't want to think about. They're not so much politicians as they are civil war reenactors, but for 1980. And if this wasn't the problem in 1980, they don't want to think about it, or they'll think about it the absolute least that they have to, and do the absolute least that they have to, or maybe even less, and that's it. So how to restrain these exercises of private authority to create and manage democracy? Well, we don't want to think about that. We just don't. So we're not going to. And so they're being paid off by private authority. So you'll have the defenses in depth. You know, they're not happening. Okay, they're happening, but they're not happening a lot. Okay, they're happening a lot, but uh, you had it coming. It's one of those things where these guys are just outright stooges for oligarchy, because if they stooge for oligarchy, then they can use some of that money to, to, you know, limit how long you have to go to barber college before you can become a barber. And, you know, that's the deal. You do some oligarchical stooging and you get some minor important, but free market reforms. So there are barriers on the right to effectively confront me. It's easy to find people on the right in politics who say this is bad. 
but who are willing to do anything or even think about doing it, they're a lot more rare to find because they don't want to think about this. Whether you're a state legislator or whether you're a member of Congress, they want to cut taxes. By the way, they don't want to cut taxes on you. They want to cut taxes on something. And the rest of this crap is just a distraction. This is the crap you have to talk about in order to gull people into voting for you so that you can do the kind of things that they want. Frankly, you don't care if these losers are being deplatformed. Now, there's structural changes of warning that are weakening you, your side in the long term, but that long term is not going to be your problem. If you serve eight years as president or four years as president, you got what you wanted. And, you know, the tech oligarchs are fun. They have cool private jets. So after you're done being president, they'll fly you around and they'll pay you $100,000, $500,000 for speeches. So they're not really your enemy. So you tell the rubes what they want to hear, but you don't actually do anything. Pete, I think this is a good place to end the first part of our conversation. We have talked about the oligarchy, both in the Republican and the Democrat Party, time and time again. And I believe we have done our best to elucidate its relationship to political rhetoric, elections, and the peculiar weaknesses of the parties and of the politicians in our times. Next, we'll talk about the politics of the Great Awakening the changes in the electorate and the parties, and how the failures of political rhetoric in 2020 point to how political rhetoric could be used well by people who care to do it and who acquire the knowledge necessary. All the best until soon.